2008, Cav Tempoli of Perth band Eskimo Joe took a walk around Manhattan while waiting to play a gig. That afternoon, while in the tunnel waiting to go on stage, the minders around them passed on some breaking news. News that would lead Cav to create some of his best work. I'm Jane Rocker, and from Mushroom, this is some of my best work. The news was that Heath Ledger, actor and fellow West Australian, had been found dead in his New York apartment. Separation and distance from their home in Australia inspired what would eventually become the song Foreign Land. Thank you, Cav, for joining me for an episode of Some of My Best Work and choosing your song foreign land can you tell us why you chose this song and when you had the initial idea to to write it so we had been touring an album called black fingernails red wine and it was a big album for us it it just had legs we toured it for about three years um you know we did about two years of touring in australia and then at a certain point in time it just it kicked off in the states and we started touring america as well and um I guess we were kind of getting to the point where, you know, we had to follow up this behemoth of an album. Um, and, you know, before Black Fingernails Red Wine, we'd, we'd put out an album called A Song as a City. And, and we were really proud of that album. We'd, you know, we'd made it to the best of our abilities. We'd got our songwriting formula down and, um, you know, we're just feeling very good. So when we went into making Black Fingernails Red Wine, we produced it ourselves and, you know, did all these kinds of things. After touring it for a, a really long time, we had like one last gig to do and it was we were going to go over to America and play this thing called G'day USA, which is a pretty funny original title, but strangely enough worked on the Americans. And it was going to be a really big deal because we were playing at the Lincoln Memorial Center. Uh, we were going to be introduced on stage by John Travolta and Bindi Irwin, so we were pretty ex- excited by that. And we are also going to be playing with a symphony orchestra and we were going to be playing our song New York in New York. So it was a big deal. And leading up to going away, I was starting to, you know, think about the idea that I had to start coming up with some ideas. I'd I'd written lots of ideas, but I was like, what's this album going to be about? With A Song as a City and with Black Fingernails Red Wine, a lot of it was, you know, me on an acoustic guitar just kind of strumming some chords until something felt right. That's generally how we write in Eskimo Joe. We have a very Beatles-like songwriting approach where we like we make sure the chords are, are perfect and the vocals are perfect, and then we start to record it and turn it into a big song. So I was actually pretty bored of doing that. I was, every time I sat down on acoustic guitar, I was like, this is boring, I'm bored. Um, <laughs> so I was listening to a song by Echo and the Bunnymen, and they had this this song called The Cutter, and it's kind of this like Middle Eastern kind of string section going on, and they're jamming over the top and being all angular and Echo and the Bunnymen. I was like, this is a cool idea. I really like this. And unfortunately, I didn't have a 
you know, a Middle Eastern string section at my disposal in uh, Fremantle, Western Australia, where I live. So I went down to my local CD shop and uh, I was just kind of looking through, you know, the, um, I guess, the the foreign music section, <laughs> for use of a better word. And I found this CD called The Sounds of Turkey. And I was like, okay, cool, that'll do. And, and I took it home and I put it on the CD player and I started to listen to it. And it was, you know, it's like an hour and a half of just continuous Turkish jam music with like one microphone in the middle of a room anyway i found this one part in the middle which was this kind of and i was like that's cool and so i got that and made a little loop out of it and then i you know put one microphone in front of the drums and i did my best like john bonham you know led zeppelin kind of impression and you know i'm a i'm not a great drummer but so i did that so i had this loop and i had this drum beat and then it was time to get on a plane and go to america and do this thing you know, we got there and we were still in full black fingernails, red wine mode at this point in time. And we got to, we were staying at this really amazing hotel called the Waldorf Astoria. And I'm pretty sure that's where they filmed the opening scene of Ghostbusters, you know, where they go into the hotel. And yeah, anyway, it was, it was classic. So we were there and, you know, it's like 12 hours time difference between Fremantle and New York. So we're pretty jet lagged and, um, you know, I woke up in the middle of the afternoon and I was like, oh, oh my God, I've got to play a gig. You know, so I just, I kind of woke up and I was like, okay, I'm going to go for a walk and clear my head. So I, I did this big, long walk, like down through East Village and it was really cold and it started to snow. And, you know, if you're from Fremantle, uh, where it never snows, it's it's pretty exciting when it starts to snow. And I remember being really touched by these, you know, all of these hardcore, you know, New York storeholders, all thinking it was quite magical as well. They were like coming out of their shop fronts and catching snowflakes on their hand. And I could see the magic in their face as well. And anyway, so I made my way in. I was like, oh, that was cool. And anyway, went back to my hotel and, you know, started to get my Black Fingernails Red Wine outfit on, which, you know, was like a cravat and a, a trench coat and lots of, we did a lot of hair straightening back in those days. We're, <laughs> we're very, we thought that was an important part of the sound. Committed to the craft, hey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, craft, hair straighten, you know. <laughs> anyway, so we got to the gig at the Lincoln Memorial Center and we were, and we were just about to walk down the red carpet when this very official looking man came up to me and said, uh, just to let you know, Heath Ledger's has just passed away. And we were obviously pretty taken aback because he was this, you know, very young, very talented guy from Perth, Western Australia, who had died, it turned out, you know, streets away from where I was walking at about 3.30 in the afternoon as it had started to snow. And we walked down the red carpet and everyone was yelling at us, you know, did you know Heath, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we didn't. I think I saw him at a party once, you know, yes. But, you know, uh, we, we went and we did the show. We had to kind of compartmentalize a little bit and we did the show and got introduced by John Travolta and Bindi Irwin. Incidentally, uh, side note, as we were waiting on stage to go on our in-ear monitors, for some reason, our packs, you know, that we plug into, like our monitor system, was tuned to John Travolta's microphone. And he was, he was, he was talking to Bindi Irwin's mum about schools. He was like, you know, you should send, you know, Bindi to this school. They're really good with, you know, famous kids. And, you know, they were obviously talking about coming to LA and blah, blah, blah. It was a very surreal moment. Anyway, we did the show. And, you know, did the whole gala event. And the next day we had to, you know, we packed up shop and went to a less romantic city of the world, which was Dallas, Texas. And I was sitting there in my hotel room and, 
looking out over this big metallic shiny city and the TV was on and it was just the news and the news was just talking about Heath, who was he? You know, they were picking apart this guy's life. And I just picked up my acoustic guitar, which I'd kind of forgotten it was a thing that I did, you know, because I was so over just picking up a guitar and writing a song. I was like, there's got to be a different way. And I didn't even think about it. I was just, but I was feeling this intense loneliness of this, you know, young guy dying alone in a foreign land away from all of his people. You know, he died in a, by himself, you know, I guess we all die alone, but he died a long way away from all the people who knew and loved him. And, and when you're from somewhere so far away from everywhere, like Perth, Western Australia, it's, it is a very individual feeling to be in a big city like New York and, and the distance and, and how isolated we are in this city. So I felt that loneliness for him. And I just picked up my guitar and I started to kind of do this very sad acoustic song, you know, about dying in a foreign land. And anyway, I didn't think too much of it. And I, I, we got home from this whole experience and, and the guys were like, so, uh, what, what are we writing, Cav? What, what song you got? And I was like, Oh, I've got, I've got this song. And I pressed play on my Turkish with me playing drums. And they were like, cool, but where, where's the song? And I was like, Oh, it goes like this. And I just, and I started to just play the acoustic song, but I, I just sung it to this big rock and roll drum beat that we had going on because we'd be playing a lot of big shows as the black fingernails red wine thing had got bigger and bigger the shows had got bigger and we'd we'd kind of transitioned from being this quiet kind of indie pop band to this you know rock and roll juggernaut and you play to your audiences and all the rest of it um so i just started to perform this acoustic song as this big rock and roll song and the two just kind of worked together. It wasn't that quick. You know, we started to do some, we had to kind of write the rest of the song. I kind of had a, maybe a bit of a verse and a chorus. I sat down with a good friend of mine, Steve Parkin, who I had done a lot of writing with. We um, we did the Basement Bird stuff together as well. And he kind of helped me workshop the verse a little bit. Um, and then I sat down with the rest of the band and we kind of wrote a big, this kind of, there's a bridge in it that has this full Led Zepp moment, which is I think we jammed that riff for about three hours straight going, this is going to be so amazing when we play it in front of people. Um, so we did that and we just kind of jammed around it and it was, it was a really good moment. And by the end of kind of a week, we had put this demo uh, of Foreign Land together and it, and it was, it wasn't too far removed from the final version, but we were lucky enough because Black Fingernails had been such a big record that we had a budget to work with a producer. So we managed to get a chap called Gil Norton, who'd made a lot of our favorite records, including, you know, the Pixies records, The Color and the Shape, and he had made uh, the Echo and the Bunnyman record, which is, uh, which is the cutter, which is where the inspiration came from in the first place. So he came in and he created a bit more dynamics in the song, but I think when we kind of walked away, there was a, a sense of relief that we had managed to kind of kick another one, you know, through the goals, you know, after Black Females being such a big song, we were like, we were pretty confident that this was going to be, you know, a good follow up to that song. Can you take me through being in the studio and, and recording the song? I mean, was it several takes? How did it sort of come together in that setting? Well, the way that Eskimo Joe work is we do... We'll start with something that is like a scratch demo, which is just the the initial kind of br broad brushstrokes of the idea. 
Um, but then we'll do a proper demo. And the the, pro- the demo is sounds pretty good. A lot of the time everyone gives us shit and says, you should just release this because this sounds pretty good. And we're like, no, no, we're going to do the album now. Um, but we look at that as like a blueprint. So we'll do that to all of the songs of the record. And then we'll take that that blueprint into the studio and just try and do a better version. It's one of those things, you know, that we kind of discuss a lot of the time and everyone has different opinions on it. But you know, when you step in front of a microphone for the first time, there's an ele- electricity and there's something about those demos that I always love because it's the first time. But whenever I'm by the light of day, when I go back and listen to the demo and the final album version, the album version's always better. It's it's always, like we we have this thing we call demoitis, which is if you like, you know, oh, it's not as good as the demo. It generally is better than the demo. You're just so used to the demo. Um, so we had done a very exact blueprint of the song before we walked into the studio and really all we were doing was trying to um you know create a bigger better version of that and um we had started it in my little jam room in hamilton hill where i lived and recorded it to the best of our abilities there it sounded pretty cool you know then when gil norton came over he's an english guy so he came over and he was in perth and he had friends in perth and so we're having a great time and we actually were like, well, let's look for a studio here. And there, unfortunately, there wasn't a studio. So we were like, okay, there's a great, we, why don't we go to Byron Bay? Because that's, you know, you're from England. That'll be a really fun experience. And so we went to a place that a bunch of our friends had recorded, which is, it's it's 301 Recording Studio in Byron Bay. But when we got there, we didn't realize that it's it's part of a TAFE, basically. <laughs> you're pretty much in a TAFE, like recording in it, which is a really surreal experience. But they've got really great gear and really good equipment. So, you know, we kind of took up camp there and, and started to record. And we had a really good engineer with us as well, Jimmy. But yeah, we had, he was engineering and he was fantastic. So Gil was able to not, he didn't have to focus on that stuff. He could just focus on what was going on. And and one of the, the really cool things about working with a producer is, you know, you learn so much. And what... Gil brought to the table is he was really good with dynamics, keeping a song interesting through dynamics. And one of the comments he made about the music we've made before is that it felt like we were just on cruise control. Like, you know, a lot of songs like New York and all of these songs we produced ourselves, he was like, there's no dynamics. They just kind of keep going. And he, he was really into the idea of, you know, using the kick drum and the bass and, you know, the dynamics to kind of keep the listener's interest. And he very famously coined that by with bands like the Pixies, you know, like that quiet loud thing that Nirvana took and ran with. So that's really Gil, you know. So he, we so compared to the demo, Gil really brought a lot of dynamics in there, and there was a whole intro section that kind of you know turned into something else again. You know, it was a pretty enjoyable and easy process. It wasn't like we were like bleeding for our art or anything. We were in Byron Bay, you know. It was the weather was nice. We were. Um, we all we all get along really well as friends, and because he's English, we could just give him endless amounts of shit, and he was like, he was completely he was completely un- unprepared for it because he'd just been working with Americans all the time who were so earnest about everything, and we were just like giving him so much shit, and he was like he he, he didn't really know what to do with it, but it was it was very funny. went on to be the most added song to radio that year. He won an APRA award for it. I mean, there's a bit of a domino effect after that. Yes, I, I think, you know, the way that it happens a lot of the time is when you win awards. I mean, I think 
they, they're often kind of accolades for stuff that you've done, like, you know, you've earned your stripes. And I felt like because that song was so well, well received, yes, we did start to win some awards around it. And I think that was also acknowledgement of the work we'd done on, on, on the previous records leading up to it. I mean, it's, it's kind of how it works in Australia. You've got to earn your stripes. We went to the APRA Awards and we won uh, an APRA Award for, yeah, the most played Australian song on radio that year, which blew my mind because, I, you know, we don't really overanalyze that stuff while it's happening. But to look back at it now, I'm like, wow, that's, that's actually <laughs> that's a huge achievement. I don't know if there were some arias in there at some point in time as well. But what happened is, you know, it allowed us, because the song was a big hit, it allowed us to kind of expand the live show as well. And suddenly we were playing these these big shows that we'd always wanted to play like the Horden Pavilion and, um, you know, and other kind of big venues like that. So, and I don't think we've been back there since. <laughs> that was our, that we peaked. That was our, that was our peak, I think. But yeah, no, it, it, it allowed us to continue doing what we do and, you know, and people like we got the kind of tick of approval from the industry. Everyone was like, yeah, you did it again. Well done. You can continue to be Eskimo Joe. And, and for the fans, I think they responded as well and all came along. And I think it, it had been a build up of if you're lucky enough to get to album number four, you kind of have a build up of fans who kind of stay with you as well. And I think the song helped, you know, those guys kind of continue on to the next phase of our career. Where were you at by album number four? I mean, that is four albums into your career. You've been overseas, you've been playing. Do you ever sort of reflect on where you were at mentally at that time as well? Yeah, it was a massive change for us because both myself and Stu were, you know, both expecting our first kids um, that arrived kind of halfway through the, just at the beginning of the recording of that record. Um, So it was a massive shift in our headspace and yeah what happened as well is we were kind of when you're in a band it's like it's kind of like joining the army you know when someone says all right it's time to ship out you just grab your bag and off you go and we had been in the middle of a long american tour when i found out that my partner was pregnant with our first child and steward can't i think he had found out just before we had left and so he was relieved that i was having a kid as well um, but by the time we sat down to record that record and we tour that record, it was a really different landscape because, you know, one of the things, you know, I can only speak from being a man, but uh, one of the things that kids do for guys is they force you to look outside of yourself for the first time. And that really affects your songwriting as well. Foreign Land had been written before kids came along, but if you listen to the rest of Inshallah, which is the album, there's, you know, this kind of massive shift of this, like, less kind of like, I'm in so much internal struggle to looking outside of yourself a little bit for the first time. And I think it's a really healthy thing. You know, I don't think you need children to evolve as humans, but it certainly helps a lot. So yeah, personally, things were changing in me and I I didn't, I wasn't as willing to sacrifice myself for the sake of writing good music. You know, a lot of the albums leading up with this kind of documentation of, you know, me falling in love and then out of love. I mean, I'm not the first person in history to do that, but it felt like it becomes a bit cannibalistic at a certain point in time, you know. And Inshallah really helped me and having kids like help me kind of shift out, out of that into this other phase. And to tell you the truth, I only feel like I'm now back to a place in myself where I'm, I've kind of moved to a new new place creatively in myself like we just wrote some new songs with Eskimo Joe and put them out in the last year that's the first songs we had done in a while it's a really hard thing to explain but 
it was the beginning of me kind of transforming into this next creative thing that I am now. Having children really helped that. But it was a really good period in our, in our lives. Like we we felt pretty good about the success that we had. We had happy family lives. I had a jam room, you know, at my house that we were writing and recording everything in. And I would kind of wake up in the morning and get my toast and tea and go out to the back jam room and the kids would be out on the back deck kind of dancing to whatever music we were writing. So it was a really, really happy time. What about playing it live? Can you remember the first time you did or just the reaction of crowds, you know, at, at dif- in different cities? We were very excited about playing it live for the first time because we had this big rock out part that we'd written, which was the da na 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 And like, like I said, we literally just jammed that riff for hours and just go, let's do it again. Like just like teenagers in our bedroom or something. But the first time we played it live, we were so confident. The first time we played it live was at uh, this huge show called Sound Relief and they filmed it. You can actually watch the footage of us, you know, doing it live for the first time and and it was a really full-on experience because we got on stage and got, you know, in-ear monitors and in our in-ears we've got like, you know, for instance, like playing Foreign Land live, the, the sample is really important. So we need to have that sample to play along to. People use backing tracks all the time these days, but it was relatively newish in 2008 or whatever when the song was kind of coming out. But we played this this big gig and for the first song, like the guy who was doing our, our foldback he hadn't plugged in a chord properly, so we didn't have a click track. And we're all kind of playing in front of 80,000 people, looking at each other, going, what's going to go on here? Luckily, we'd, the first song we started with was From the Sea. That The backing track is a click track. It's a metronome going. So we were like, okay. And then halfway through, obviously, the, the fallback guy goes, oh, what does this do? And plugs it in, and suddenly the click comes in, and you can see our faces go, oh, my God, the click's in. This is going to work. And then, yeah, then we played Foreign Land and... and um for the first time in front of people and it was like I guess a bold move because usually you you play your biggest hits when you're playing in front of a a crowd that large but we were just so excited about playing this behemoth like the most rockin song we'd ever written you know in front of a big stadium audience you know that's like what teenage dreams are made of so uh, it was a pretty special moment. Coming back to the idea of some of my best work you know why you consider it so? Consider this some of my best work because I like the fact that this song stepped outside of the formula for the first time, the, you know, a song as a city and all the rest of it. We really kind of nailed our formula at that point in time. And it felt like, yes, cool. We can just, we do our thing. And then we go to this chord and, and by Black Fingernails Red Wine, it was so fast and so easy. And we were really working. Everyone was on the same page about what we were doing. But as an artist, you're like, it's too easy. I need to make it hard for myself. And you do this to make it interesting, but sometimes spectacularly fail while you do that, you know. And so what I'm really proud of about this song is that we stepped outside of the formula and it worked, even from its origins, which is starting it with this Turkish sample and a and a drum beat, you know, to this story that was, you know, over here that we kind of brought into this thing. It, it it's not like I sat down to go, okay, I'm going to write this song about this and it's going to be this big rock song and it's going to be like that. There was all these serendipitous things that happened and I really, I love the idea that, you know, we're not really that in control. We might come up with the best formulas in the world and think we're so clever, but unless you have an element of sensitivity in what you're doing, then you're just kind of, you know, trying to win a race on one leg. Bringing these kind of 
these these different elements together, I, I felt like you know, there was something quite serendipitous about how this song was written. And, and and so it's still a surprise to me when I hear this song. I'm like, wow, <laughs> we wrote that? That's cool. I didn't feel preconceived. It just kind of, it came together with all these elements that I could have never planned. And now we have this amazing song that's, you know, that's there forever in, in history. It's great. Yeah, beautiful. Well, thank you so much for taking part in some of my best work, Kath. It's nice to see you again. Thanks, Jane. And and Kath said to say hello as oh, well. Oh, beautiful Kath. <laughs> Kath Tempoli from Eskimo Joe and the Story of Foreign Land. I'm Jane Rocker. Thanks for listening to some of my best work. Thank mm-hmm. you.